Welcome to the first Bridge Builder Podcast initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. The Minnesota Catholic Conference is the public policy voice of the Catholic Church in Minnesota. I am your co-host, Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and I'm joined by our Policy and Outreach Coordinator, Rachel Herbeck. Rachel. Morning, Jason. I'm so excited to be here for this first podcast. Uh, It's going to be great. We're really excited. It's a, a new initiative for us here at the Catholic Conference, and what we hope to do is uh, help people bridge that gap between faith and public life and help them translate important principles of our faith into practical ways of thinking and acting um, as prophetic voices in the public arena. We're very grateful, first of all, to our producer, Catherine Cross, as well as our studios here, Relevant Radio AM 1330, which graciously allows us to use their facilities to record this. And of course, our sponsor for this episode, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council, the Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we are discussing integral ecology, um, this important term that Pope Francis has really uh, popularized in his encyclical Laudato Si, and uh, help us delve into uh, what it means in, in a practical way for being good stewards, stewards of creation. We'll also spend some time examining a related encyclical in our segment on classic Catholic social teaching, Humanae Vitae, which is going to be celebrating its 50th anniversary on July 25th, 2018, why that's important, how it's connected to an idea of integral ecology, stewardship, and then we'll also uh, talk about ways in which you can practically take action and bring your faith into the public arena during the podcast. Well, finally, we'll finish out with a bit of sacred music performed by some of the incredible voices we have around here in Minnesota. Um, in in, In this episode, the National Catholic Youth Choir will be performing Sikut Chervos by Palestrina. So we, let's just get into it. Our first guest, uh, the very highly beloved and esteemed professor of Catholic studies and professor of the St. Paul Seminary, Dr. Christopher Thompson. Dr. Thompson, welcome. Glad you're with us. Very, very happy to be here. You um, have a long background in history at St. Thomas, uh, teaching moral theology to seminarians and students, uh, both inside and outside the Catholic studies realm. But you've taken on a new, new role, and that's co-director of the Murphy Institute for Catholic Law thought, and public policy. Would you mind saying a little bit about the Murphy Institute and your role there? Sure. Uh, The Murphy Institute uh, goes uh, back to some of the early origins of uh, Catholic studies, has a long history uh, with the organization. Uh, It's dedicated to exploring the intersection of Catholic social teaching, thought, and uh, public policy, as the the title of the program uh, uh, suggests. And we try to create space to, to draw together people that might not normally be in conversation, or if they are in conversation, excessively acrimonious, maybe, and try to create that, uh, that venue in which uh, different perspectives can be examined and certainly heard and then evaluated in light of uh, our principles of Catholic social thought. Now, you've, uh, in, in that role, are going to be bringing more emphasis to uh, cre- about topics related to creation stewardship mm-hmm. and biotechnology, agriculture, mm-hmm. the environment. And that's become an increasing uh, role, or uh, played an increasing role in your scholarship of, as of late, and you have a new book called The Joyful Mystery. Tell us how your scholarship uh, has focused more and why it's focused more on creation, environmental ethics, stewardship. Sure. Uh, you know, most of us are writing out of our experience, and, and so I'll just chat a little bit about uh, mine. Uh, you know, I was trained in sort of standard classic Catholic moral theology, so we did a lot of Aquinas and did a lot of natural law. Uh, but over the years, really, in working with students and, and young people, I just started to notice a certain gap opening up in their thinking 
regarding their knowledge of uh, of creation, and by that I mean just uh, creatures, bugs, bunnies, birds, bees, you know. Uh, and it, uh, ironically, it, it ends up being kind of challenging to teach Catholic thought when there's that gap. In other words, so much of poetry alludes to natural imagery, so much of Catholic thought alludes to natural imagery, the scriptures allude to natural imagery all of the time, and, and when a person is sort of cut off from these things, it's hard to get the basic message across. So I started to notice in the students um, this, this, this distance between themselves and the natural order. And these are fantastic students. These are Catholic studies, after all. So we're talking cream of the crop. Uh, really fine young people, no question about it. But, but there clearly was this gap. So uh, if I can go on, we, uh, we, we decided to go out to rural uh, Minnesota on a little retreat and took students uh, out to visit three farms just to expose them to... Uh, uh, you know, life in, in Minnesota. And, and at the end of the retreat, I had a student write, you know, reactions to the, what did you learn, that sort of thing. And a young person said, I, I didn't know they raised animals in Minnesota. <laughs> well, uh, anybody from Minnesota and certainly rural Minnesota knows there's animals all over the place. But this person was uh, from California and flew and landed at the airport and drove to St. Thomas and went to college and then went home. And if that's your world, then, then no, you wouldn't know anything about uh, nature or ecology. And it just seemed to me uh, to produce a student, a graduate, uh, especially Catholic studies, uh, with no knowledge of the natural order or the natural setting in which we live is a bit like having a liberal arts major, major who doesn't know that there are things like art museums. You know, you say, what? Are there buildings with art? I didn't know that. I think most of us would think that that's a defect. But for some reason, we've talked ourselves into thinking that ignorance about the natural world and a, almost a certain disdain for the natural world, we've talked ourselves into thinking, well, that's a, that's a particularly Catholic, that only, that's a serious Catholic posture. Mm-hmm. And it was that sort of thing that I, that, I, that I started to say, you know, something's gone wrong in our, in our conversation. So uh, that makes maybe a long answer to a, a simple question, but... Uh, that's how I started, frankly, it was in teaching the students that I started to see this gap between ecology and theological conscience. And a lot of those reflections and your work on that over the last number of years has been uh, brought together in your book, The Joyful Mystery. Right, right. And in that book, you really spend a lot of time talking about Pope Francis and Laudato Si and this idea of integral ecology. What is integral ecology and why is it relevant to the Catholic in the pew? Well, yeah, let me say that, uh, you know, kudos to, to Pope Francis for finally bringing the church front and center into the dialogue uh, of ecology in general. I, I just want to point out, you know, the Church in the Modern World, the famous uh, document out of Vatican II, that was in 1964, the very year that the Wilderness Preservation Act was published in the United States. So you have this great rise of environmental consciousness in the secular world. You have this document from the Church in the Modern World in Vatican II the same year. You would have thought they would have captured that movement, but in fact, there's no mention of the environment whatsoever. So uh, despite those who want to say that the Church has been engaged in this question, I think a more honest assessment is we're, we are fairly late to the conversation. The fact is the environmental movement was... Uh, alive and well and flourishing and a vibrant uh, conversation. And, and I think a more honest assessment is to say we were, we were on the margins until uh, Laudato Si. Uh, and so Francis has moved uh, the great treasury of the church and her wisdom to the questions of ecology. And I think both sides are going to be better off for it. 
ecologists are finally going to get a theological context for their conversations, and, and theologians are, and Catholics in general are going to get more, more soundly rooted in the context in which we live our Catholic faith. So that, that was a bridge building that was uh, incredible uh, and, and desperately needed, needed to happen on the part of, uh, part of Francis uh, and the church more broadly. So you, talk, you talked about this gap that you experience in your students, and I think we see that, as you're saying, in the broader church as well, this gap that you know, serious theology or serious Catholic thinking is kind of separated from the natural world. So in the context of, of Pope Francis's encyclical and in the context of this idea of integral ecology, what would you say, even you know, in just a sentence or from your experience, what is a proper... Catholic understanding of this idea look like? Yeah, uh, that's good. And, 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 and circle back to Jason's question, I suppose. You know, what, what do we mean by integral ecology? Uh, so I think the best way to get at it is let, let's just take your typical rural, small town America. Let, you know, go in your imagination to uh, not the interstate where you're zipping past at, you know, 75 or whatever, but those, those two-lane roads where you're kind of going through these towns one after the other. And, and, and what do you see? Well, in a certain sense, you, if you're in the Midwest, you see miles and miles and miles of corn. And you see miles and miles and miles of soybeans. So from the perspective of production and yield, American agriculture has been this extraordinary success. The kinds of fruits of our labors that we're getting from agriculture has been the dream of, of millennia. You know, people wouldn't have imagined getting 200 acres of uh, 200 bushels of corn. And now that's, that's not too unusual. So from one level, it's fantastic. You go from the other perspective and you look at the small town and what do you see? You see this shop is closed. You see that this one is closed. You see that the school is vacant. You see that everyone has moved out. You see the lousy health care. You see the opioid addiction. Integral ecology is an attempt to raise the question, how can it be that this great achievement regarding our, our use of creation ends up producing these sort of uh, inhuman sets of social circumstances? It's about bridging the gap between e ecological concern and land stewardship and human flourishing. Uh, integral ecology pushes the ecologist to say, well, now, wait a minute, you know, I, I realize you're committed to the flourishing of some species, but so often ecologists are an antithetical to human life, and, and they sometimes, anyway, will, will pr uh, promote a, you know, pro-abortion and family reduction kind of agenda. Well, what kind of an ecology is that, where we've got, uh, you know, flourishing species, but no human beings uh, to enjoy it? So integral ecology is about Bridging those divides, the last one is especially volatile, but even at the more human level, when you're, when you're driving out in rural communities, you have to ask yourself, is this a success story or is this a failure? Well, in some ways it's a success, some ways it's a failure. Integral ecology is about uh, finding out uh, what are the parameters or what are the terms in which we can evaluate that more holistically. So integral ecology is that ethic or those sets of that set of principles or that lens through which we can address some of these complex problems and in a way that's that's connected. And Pope Francis keeps highlighting the idea that everything is connected, everything's interrelated. Right, right. You know, you're concerned about water stewardship. Well, we should all be also be concerned about the the body because we're right. pumping hormones right. into right. the water supply. Right. 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 Exactly. Now, getting back to a, a if integral ecology is that ethic or that set of principles or that lens. It first requires what Pope Francis calls ecological conversion. Yeah. Before we embrace, to get us to embrace that, we need to undergo our own 
conversion, ecological stewardship conversion. What does he mean by eco- ecological conversion? What does that look like, and what might be some ways in which if people are genuinely seeking the Lord and wanting to follow the yeah. Pope Francis, how do they do that? Right. I, I appreciate the line of question here because, you know, on a lot of these topics, it can get dark pretty fast, and, and, and you can stress out about all the challenges. But at the heart of it, at the heart of uh, integral ecology and ecological conversion, is frankly falling in love with the Lord again. And the Christians profess, of course, Jesus Christ. Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Logos in flesh. He is the one through whom all things were made. In other words, you can't be a Christian and be indifferent to creation. So part of the facet of integral ecology is to reinvigorate our Christian faith and reappropriate and re-embrace the person of Jesus Christ as the one through whom all things were made. And so the logos enfleshed in the person of Jesus is the logos that you and I experience in the beauty of the world. So when you and I are out in a national park, you know, maybe you go to Rocky Mountain uh, or you go and see a, a, a sunset, I, I think even the good Catholic sometimes doesn't know what to do with that experience. They, they maybe are slightly uh, unsettled by it because they feel this rush, but, but it's not in a church or it doesn't have a certain structure to it. What integral ecology is saying is, hey, wait a minute, pay attention to that experience of beauty. That is one of the principal ways that God speaks to us. And in fact, in terms of our Christian and Catholic faith, the earth and its splendor is the first book God wrote. The scriptures is the second. And what integral ecology is about is learning to recover that first text, learning to recover our experience of creation, of the beauty of nature, as the way God enters into my heart. For so many of us, our first real experience of faith in God is through the beauty of creation. You know, you might go, uh, you might go uh, on a tech retreat, and that can be a very powerful thing. But for many of us, uh, it's paddling up in the boundary waters and seeing the starry heavens uh, adorned in all their splendor for the first time. For many of us, that's where we first sense uh, that there might be something bigger. There might be something more in my life. And, and what integral ecology is saying is go with that experience. When you experience God and the beauty of creation, this is the Logos reaching out. It's not the Logos enfleshed in Jesus, but it's the Logos veiled in creation. And for Christians, that's one and the same Logos. So the link between creation and Christ is uh, profound and inescapable. You've thought a lot more um, in terms of taking the idea of integral ecology and translating into public policy as of late. Where do you see that there are two areas of public policy that really could use uh, the impact of integral ecology in that framework for thinking about how to look at some of these complex uh, social, political, and environmental problems? Well, I'd like to think uh, Catholics need to embrace uh, environmental awareness uh, more robustly. And, and of course, in public policy, that's going to play out in lots of different different settings. But I, 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 at least the circles I run in, which are fairly faithful, uh, for lack of a better term, conservative Catholics, there's almost that spontaneous reaction to environmentalism where they sort of dismiss it. And it's, and it's easy to ridicule. You can go on YouTube and find a lot of goofy things out there in about five minutes. Uh, but I think it's juvenile, frankly, for us to take that posture. And we're missing an opportunity for evangelization by holding ecological concern and environmental policy at arm's length. 
I, I think Catholics should be on the vanguard of, of many of those issues. We should be the Christian community identified for its ecological awareness. That is, in fact, core to our Catholic faith. We don't think nature is a blank slate. We don't think creation is, is so wounded by sin that it yields nothing of the presence of God. We don't see grace as something alien to the natural uh, instincts of the human person or what's happening in the world. Grace perfects nature. And so, uh, you know, the earth is, is uh, Francis says, is that gospel of creation. And I'd love to see on the public policy level that, uh, that take on a more robust front gen, uh, generally. More specifically, uh, agricultural policy in terms of uh, food security, uh, in terms of uh, nutrition, in terms of organic farming. I think it's, it's, I think it's perfectly consistent with our Catholic witness that you would take uh, organic food production seriously and begin to support those farmers in your choices. You go to the farmer's market. And, and uh, you know, something in me says, well, I want to go to Sam's Club and, and buy a cubic yard of beef, you know, because it's so cheap. But we want to resist those impulses and say, well, you know, it, it might be cheap in terms of the price, but someone is paying the price in the process, whether it's the workers that have to produce this, whether it's the environmental conditions that this kind of stuff uh, leaves behind, someone pays that price. Catholic consciences have to be much more alert to the environmental practices that they find themselves a part of and bring their uh, faith to that practice. So a few minutes ago when you were talking about the idea of integral ecology, you talked about it as, you know, this ethic that's trying to build a bridge between, you know, some ideas or some ethics that may seem separate from each other. And I think when we're specifically talking about public policy, I think that's where some Catholics um, have a hard time balancing those two things. And so when you're talking about these ideas or these public policy things, what would you say to people who are having a difficult time balancing? Well, you know, what if the family is really poor and they can't afford, you know, this organic kind of meat, but they want to help the environment or, you know, these yeah, right. balancing the person with the environmental thing. And how does integral ecology help those two connect and yeah. both flourish? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's maybe just focus on that question about what are folks about limited resources. Right. And, and, and I haven't read, I haven't met anyone that says I have an unlimited resources. <laughs> uh, so, but, but I think take, to take the question uh, seriously, there are people that have, you know, economic limits and, and, and are struggling to make ends meet. And so their first priority is to find the cheapest goods at the cheapest price. Right. Know? And that's certainly understandable. What does integral ecology then mean in that particular context? Uh, I, I, this is where I think bringing back, frankly, the tradition of tithing, the, mm -hmm. the, the tradition of 10 percent. Yeah. That is, uh, in your purchases, you just commit 10 percent of the grocery budget to a more thoughtful, intentional mm -hmm. purchase. We're not asking people to... Uh, you know, change their ways and, and go to Whole Foods or go to Mississippi, which, by the way, would be uh, as obviously can, can get pr pricey. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, we're not asking people to sort of adopt the, the most sophisticated uh, tastes of the organic food movement because a lot of from a lot of people that that's out of reach economically. Right. And we have to be honest about that. But I think any family could could adjust their purchases and their decision making. Uh, on a principle of tithing, that right. is ten percent. Yeah. So, so 
instead of just immediately racing out and and uh, you know buying the 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 large uh, quantities of the cheapest food you'd be a little more intentional in your purchase and start to ask questions uh, about where the food is produced, how it's produced, and what kind of impact it has on both the ecology and the human ecology mm-hmm. in terms of its workers. That, to me, seems achievable. Yeah. Uh, that, that seems to me within, within reach. But then even, a, even aside from you know, purchasing questions, just being a little bit more attentive to the surroundings that you're in, the, the care you take in terms of the, the house and the property that you own, the attention you bring to your, your your civic life here in the Twin Cities, we're blessed with incredible parks. Well, why not why not introduce your family into these worlds, and mm-hmm. why not begin to teach them that the way they happen is through committed effort on the part of many. Here, it doesn't cost you anything to to get access to a park. It doesn't cost you anything to get access to you know beautiful surrounding. It seems to me you could easily introduce your children into those values mm-hmm. as an important value of the common good. And here we're not talking about financial financial uh, expenditure, but I do think you raise a really good point in that there is a there's a certain uh, bourgeois uh, uh, element to some of the food movements for sure. And if you're not careful, by that I mean if you're not really focused on loving our Lord, then uh, your environmental sensitivity is really a species of gluttony, mm. and it's just simply parading as concern. And that, of course, would be a vice and and not consistent with our Catholic faith. Right. Dr. Thompson, we have time for one more question, and we are looking at uh, this week observing, the upcoming week observing the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, reading re- and rereading that encyclical, one is struck by the relationship and the connection to Pope Francis's Laudato Si. Right at the beginning, uh, we hear Pope uh, Paul VI say, um, man is trying to rationally organize the forces of nature to the point that he's endeavoring to extend this control over every aspect of his own life, over his body, over his mind and emotions, over his social life, and even over the laws that regulate the transmission of life. Really the very theme that Pope Francis takes up in much more depth. Um, yeah, that's how right. do we understand the connection and right. relationship between these two encyclopedias? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, you know, it's still some time. We'll have to think more deeply about Laudato Si and its implications in terms of the development of the doctrine and magisterium. But in many ways, I see Humanae Vitae as the first installment in integral ecology. It was the first attempt to seriously raise questions about our status as creatures, our status as living within a providently arranged world. And frankly, whether it's the garden bed or the marriage bed, divine providence rules. And you and I have a docility to the wisdom of the creator. And it's this, and, and, and people in terms of their food, they want their food to be raised uh, in all of these uh, special circumstances. And the church is inviting us to, to consider those same circumstances when it comes to our children. You know, some in my more flip moments, I suppose I say, the church really wants our families, our children, to be raised locally, organically, and cage-free. That is, we want our children to be raised in a marriage, in an intact marriage here. You don't, you don't order out, in other words. You, you, you create the family with the spouse that you've uh, been given in marriage. And we want them to be organic. That is, we don't want them to be products of highly sophisticated technological uh, uh, interventions. You know, We want them to be raised in uh, a natural uh, family. And then, of course, we want it to be free. We want it to be an expression of love, no coercion. The irony is, 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 is the number of people who are totally dedicated to these values regarding the treatment of animals, and frankly, I think they're, they're right, 
uh, I'd love to invite the same community to say, well, that's what the church is saying in, in a certain sense regarding human beings. Not because, of course, we are animals, but because there's something about the body and the natural environment that you and I participate in that reflects the divine wisdom at work. And this is what uh, uh, I think, uh, this is to me one of the interesting links between Humana Vitae and Laudato Si. Dr. Thompson, uh, you've uh, shared with us some really important thoughts today and shown why you're one of the most important and engaging theologians in the church today, but most importantly, a mentor to so many uh, young students and Catholics looking to more deeply live their faith. Your book is called The Joyful Mystery. Who is the publisher of that? So people can go out and get it. It's Emmaus Press. Emmaus Press, The Joyful Mystery by Dr. Christopher Thompson. Thanks so much for being with us today. God bless. Thanks. And we're back. Uh, we were joined earlier in the podcast by Dr. Christopher Thompson of the University of St. Thomas Murphy Institute for Catholic Law, Thought, and Public Policy. And we finished that conversation with some reflections on uh, Humanae Vitae and its connection to Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. Everything is connected, and we want to take a little bit of time to explore this great document in the Catholic social tradition. Uh, oftentimes we think it the Catholic social tradition, Catholic social teaching speaks only to economic uh, or social problems, but it's really a prophetic way of understanding and thinking about how all of these issues are related to creation and our stewardship of creation, bringing God's wise and loving care um, have an impact and what are the principles that we can use to bring the gospel into every aspect of our life. So we want to spend a little bit of time, uh, Rachel, talking about Humanae Vitae. Why, uh, as a young person, uh, as someone uh, coming out and living discipleship uh, after college in the church, someone who's not married, why is this encyclical important, relevant, or engaging for you? Yeah, as I was thinking about this encyclical, there's so many great parts of it and great pieces, but one thing that came to mind, I think, especially young people, when we hear about this or young married couples, we just tend to think of this as sometimes the contraception encyclical, you know, but as you really read through it, I think what's so striking and what's so striking to me is that Pope Paul VI, he's really trying to teach us through this encyclical what happens when we say yes. You know, so it's not a no encyclical, don't do this, don't do this, but really what happens when we say yes to, as we talked about earlier, the divine order and the divine providence that God has for us, and that actually leads to human flourishing. And it also teaches us, you know, what happens when we say no to those things and he goes through some things that he think will ha thinks will happen but I think that's the most engaging thing for me is it really lays out what will say what will happen when we say yes to this really elevated calling this elevated way to live and I think as a young person I want to live an elevated life you know I don't want to live a normal life I don't want to be pandered to I want to live an elevated calling yeah there's a tendency to look at church documents or church teachings or papal teachings looking for a, a simple yes or no to some social phenomenon, right? Right. Humanae Vitae, we get, it's written off, well, that's the contraception encyclical. Mm -hmm. Or Laudato Si, that's the climate change encyclical. Right. And really what you have in here is the approach or a perspective and really a, a prophetic approach to a perspective. Um, and it's a holistic teaching that looks at these things and shows their connection to so many other phenomena. And Pope Paul VI, uh, it was emphatically prophetic in this encyclical and, and talked about a number of things that um, perhaps many couldn't see down the horizon uh, with the broader normalization and acceptance of 
contraception and birth control. But he identified some really important factors. And I think we can think, first of all, the way in which he speaks of the degradation, the male degradation of women looking at women purely as an object Mm -hmm. for pleasure. And, And here we are today at the Me Too movement. Right. Right. I mean, even just in this, you can look out over all the years since this has been, this encyclical came out, but even if you just take the last year as a snapshot of what's happening and just the prophetic hand, the prophetic hand of the Holy Spirit that was on Pope Paul VI as he wrote this, you know, infidelity and moral decline we've seen in this past year, the Me Too movement, the, you know, the rise of sites like Ashley Madison, you know, where people can cheat on their spouses. And it's just, we're seeing what happens when we step out of that divine providence and the divine order, you know, because we want to be the masters of ourselves, you know, and then we're seeing that this is happening, this moral decline and all this Me Too stuff, yeah. And rather than looking at sex and in the context of marriage as part of a holistic relationship, mm-hmm. right, and the, the married couple's complementary relationship, they're sharing in God's uh, creative power, right. really, um, instrumentalizing sex mm-hmm. in, in many ways, and the consequences that has separating um, procreation from uh, sexuality. And now we have all kinds of impacts of that that we see in our own public policy work, don't we? Surrogacy, right? Um, you know, the surrogacy, human trafficking, pornography, et cetera, et cetera. What are some of the things that really strike you as as prophetic about some of the predictions Pope Paul VI makes? Yeah, I mean, I think the even just as you're saying, going back to the the work that we've done on human trafficking and pornography, you know, John Paul II was always talking about how pornography was separating the person, that that was one of the main problems. And we've really seen a degradation of human dignity and a separation of the person, you know, that it really doesn't matter who I'm with as long as I can achieve pleasure, as long as I can do these things. And I think people think you know, this is back to that idea of connectedness. Everything is connected. People think, well, I can take this out of this context and just have sex in this context or just do this in the context of this relationship and everything will be fine. But I think what strikes me is the domino effect, you know, is in then in interpersonal relationships and in family relationships in society, you know, then society's crumbling because of personal choices, you know, and I think we've taken We've separated the person from acts, and then we've separated the person from communities and communities from society. And so we're seeing the results of that. I'm just struck again and again reading the encyclical about the way in which Pope Paul VI directly takes on this idea that because we're rational creatures, because Mm -hmm. God endowed us with the gift of reason, therefore we are free Mm -hmm. to make choices about how we regulate procreation, for example. and. He embraces that. The church embraces the human intellect, uh, the use of reason, but says that our use of our reason uh, must always be in accord with truth and mm-hmm. the natural order and the way in which God designed things. And there can't be a conflict between the two, right? That our reason is guided by our faith and what we know um, by discerning in creation all of God's intentions and purposes and his design and that our happiness comes in acting in accord with that. So that's a lesson right. that has impacts on all kinds of levels like we just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something and right. that the, the extent to which we can do something and use our intellect has to be in accord with the way in which god designed providentially uh, his care for creation right and the more we use our our reason you know outside of truth that's slavery you know it, the more we get into slavery and it's interesting the dichotomy especially when you're talking about 
you know, co taking the idea of contraception from humana vitae and people, you know, might say in the modern world might say, well, if I can't use contraception, then I'm just a slave to my fertility, you know, unless I can have this power over my fertility. But then it, it really is the opposite, you know, and that's what the devil does is he flips these truths around and makes it the opposite. And the freedom that people actually experience working with their bodies as opposed to dominating their bodies is just an example of, you know, how we get out of this slavery of sin ultimately, you know. And so when we separate this truth from reason, we get more and more the opposite of what we want to be, which is free. Yeah, the living, living the truth, living that, that's in exercising that. That's true freedom, true happiness. Right. So much to unpack in this encyclical. Uh, it's a short one, and it's we're celebrating its 50th anniversary uh, coming up July 25th. Really recommend uh, to our listeners to re-engage and rethink through it. Uh, very accessible encyclical, very beautiful and prophetic, and uh, praise be to God for this blessing that uh, Pope Paul VI gave us. In a moment, we're going to step into some practical ways in which Catholics can live their faith in the public arena. This podcast is called the Bridge Builder Podcast, and if we weren't providing practical ways that you uh, can live your faith and bring it into the public arena, bring gospel values into public life, we would be doing a disservice. So we want to take some time in each and every podcast uh, to provide some practical hints and tips uh, for living your faith as a faithful citizen in public life. So, Rachel, what are some things that you're seeing on the horizon, the ways in which people can get involved and be engaged uh, some practical tips and what's going on out there. Right. So I think this being especially our first podcast, we want to start off with something really foundational um, that actually a lot of people who are trying to enter into the political world don't do. I know I didn't do this. Um, and so I think what we see is, you know, we're talking about these great ideas. We've unpacked a lot of really interesting ideas. I would, you know, reiterate and listen to some of those ideas that Dr. Thompson said earlier in the podcast. I think those are really doable. Um, but then on a public policy level, we say, okay, these are great ideas. I don't know how to get involved, or we take it straight to the federal level. And so I think when we're building bridges, we want to say, who can I build a bridge with? And that first person to build your bridge with is your legislators, you know, so your representative and your senator, because they're in your local community. They're representing you locally. And this was kind of a, a light turn on for me when I started getting involved in some of this stuff. I was passionate and I still had never I didn't even know who represented me on the state level, you know. So I think that would be the first foundational. It's a really simple, straightforward action item to do is to look up who in your community represents you, who is your state representative and who is your state senator. And we'll have a link um, on the, you know, when you click the podcast, we'll have a link there. You can get there through our website, mncatholic.org. There's a lot of really great resources there. But I would pose that before you do anything else, do that. And not only look them up, but maybe send an introductory message to them. Call their office, chat with their um, their aide that'll answer the phone and introduce yourself. They're, they want to hear from you. You are constituents in their community. And so... Um, you're in charge in a way, you know, and so call them, let them know that you don't have to have a big speech. Just say, hey, I'm a person in your community. I'm trying to get more involved. I just wanted to introduce myself. Here are some of my concerns. Yeah, so I think that's a good practical first step. The news cycle so focuses so much, as you said, Rachel, on the federal level and what's going on nationally that we forget that some of the most important decisions are made right in your backyard at the, at the city level, the county level, mm -hmm. um, and especially at the state level. Yet, 
nine times out of 10, when I ask someone who represents you, they can't give me that answer. And so how can we expect that good laws are made if we're not in relationship with the people who represent us? And so taking the time to go out, get to know them, um, build relationships with them, build a dialogue, build friendship, foster that encounter that Pope Francis is talking so much about is the first step really in Mm -hmm. bringing gospel values into the public square. So if we want to be bridge builders, focusing on relationships is going to be key. Well, that's our podcast for today. Again, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM and our sponsor for this episode, the Knights of Columbus, the Knights of Columbus Building the Domestic Church. And thank you for listening. Make sure you share this podcast with all your friends and family. And what better way to end a podcast of great conversations than with great sacred music? Again, sacred music produced by local Minnesota voices. Here is Sikut Chervos Psalm 42, the translation, like the deer pants for living waters, for running streams. So my soul thirsts for you, O God, by the 16th century composer Giovanni Pierluigi Palestrina and performed by the National Catholic Youth Choir at St. John's University. God bless you.